Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. We're continuing here. Uh, yeah, I think this is our, we're in the middle section of the Apostles' Creed, and I think, yeah, today we're wrapping it up, and then we're going to take uh, a little break from the Apostles' Creed, and then the next three weeks, we're going to have a, a practice series on worship. Uh, so we're wrapping up the, 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 the middle section of the Apostles' Creed and, and considering what does it mean to confess uh, the Apostles' Creed. Here's, here's a quote by one author who says, Christianity is a confession, not an explanation. We will confess what we can, but we will always confess more than we can explain. And so we're, we're looking at this knowing there's more to uncover, more than we can understand and even articulate. Last week, I thought Nelson did a great job on uh, opening up what it means to confess that uh, Jesus ascended, the ascension. Um, and I thought it was really helpful to see the ascension's not some disappearing act. Uh, it's really not about absence, but about God's distributed presence and authority, that, that Christ has uh, been raised and ascended and has all authority. I thought there was a lot of good news in that word. And so then this week, we come to the next part uh, in the creed. It says, he will come, and, and, and the old style of saying the creed says, he will come to judge the quick and the dead. And, and just so, so we know, quick means living, uh, not fast moving. So for those of us who feel exceptionally slow and we feel like we might be off the hook uh, here, he will come again to judge the quick, the living, and the dead. And as I was preparing this week to offer sermon on that part, had, uh, this doesn't happen very often, but one of those Saturday night experiences where after the whole week you realize, oh no, I've been preparing the wrong sermon. Uh, so I was ready to offer one sermon and had to make a quick pivot. But I just want to give you the outline of the old sermon just because I'm not sure how good the new sermon's going to be. So just, just so you know, this, this was the original plan that Jesus is judge, and I'm not, you're not, they're not, the church is not. Uh, only Jesus holds justice and love together in perfect symmetry. Uh, the Gospel of John says that Jesus came full of grace and truth, and then that God's judgment looks like Jesus. And we see this in a number of ways. The, the, you know, the, the great story in John 8, this woman caught in adultery. And the religious professionals are trying to trap Jesus to see what kind of judgment he's going to make over her life. And if you know the story, he does this surprising reversal and says, okay, those of you without sin, throw the first stone. And just dismantles that whole system of judgment. And so he does two things with this person. He gives a word of, there's no condemnation in my presence. And the second is, he says, go and sin no more. So God's judgment looks like Jesus, and we see it in the Gospels, and we see it most clearly in the cross. But we're not going to do that sermon. Uh, rather, we're going to do something a little ramblier and messier. So I want to look at three texts. One, a giant excursus, and excursus is just the fancy word for rabbit trail. Okay, so we're going to have one major long rabbit trail in the middle that I'm, I'm really hopeful will link up. And then uh, one heartfelt extended point of application. So that's where we're going to go. Let's have a prayer. We say again, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so we pray for uh, a living word from you, a word from elsewhere, a word from beyond our moment, beyond our perspective, a word that's true and good and beautiful. Living God, would you speak in this moment? And we call on the, the fire of the Holy Spirit to descend here, to burn up the chaff, to burn up the extras, to burn up the distractions, to burn up that in us that's just is not necessary, and to refine in this moment your, your invitation for our next step as a community. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, let's go to one of the first texts here. This is 1 Corinthians 4. I, I would so appreciate it if you go there with me, mostly because I want you to see this for yourself. And uh, so we're going to be in three places primarily, but 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verse 3 to 5. Let's go there together. If you've got a chair Bible uh, beside you, I think the page number is up there. 
So with, with the one article of the Apostles' Creed, he will come again to judge the living and the dead in the background. Then let's, let's hear the scripture together. Paul writes, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Paul says, I care very little. There's, there's, there's a, a, almost a total disregard for the judgment game. Like, I, I've, I've checked out. I'm not in y'all's court. I'm not in the court of public opinion. I'm not in the court of my peers. I'm not in the court of the spirit of the day. I'm not in any human court. I've checked out of that game. And, and he pushes it further saying, I don't even judge myself. And perhaps this is, this is the kind of judgment that's hardest to relinquish. Holding ourselves on trial. Judgments about my body, my intellect, my past. A judgment, an ongoing investigation into my own shadows and sins and darkness. Or perhaps just the sense of living under a multitude of sentences. I don't even judge myself, Paul says. Why? He said, well, because it's not about my conscience being clear. It's easy, to, it's easy to rationalize and compartmentalize. It's easy to forget stuff. It's easy to compare myself to someone that might make me feel better. I, I don't do any of that. Why? He says, the, it's the Lord who judges. There's one judge. There's really only one opinion that matters to me. There's one verdict. I live in front of an audience of one. This is Jesus, he says. So therefore... If there's one judge, and it ain't me, and it ain't you, and it ain't them out there, if, and I'm not in that court, he says, I, I live in front of one judge, he says, therefore, the action is to wait. Patience is needed. He says, don't rush to judgment on things. Your task and my task is to wait, to have confidence that the Lord knows what he's doing. He can set things right. He'll bring things to light. He's good at his job. Wait. I don't, I don't know what you hear in these words, but I hear, I hear a lightness. I hear a freedom. I hear someone who's like, nobody owns me. No, nobody owns me. I'm not waiting for permission. I'm not seeking validation. I'm not living under condemnation. Why? Because I'm not part of the game that you all think is the game. I'm not in any human court. I care very little. I love this, and I know so little of this. I, I love hearing a person like this and know so few people like this. I care very little about the grown-up versions of the little kid games of who's in and out. I care very little of comparison and gossip. Paul says, so I hear someone here who's living out of a different center. Why? Because he's believing into a story where Jesus is the judge and he's not. And I, th I would like to know a little bit about that. So here's the extended excursus rabbit trail. Okay, you ready? Okay, let's go. Um, no one said yes, so I'll just take that as uh, uh, yes. Okay, so let's go to Genesis 3 together. I want to read that here with you. Why is, it, why is it so hard to even know what Paul is talking about there? Why is it so hard to care very little I, when I, in fact, care so much? Maybe you'd say the same thing. How is Paul checked out of the game? I think it has a lot to do with this origin story in Genesis 3. Genesis 3, 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. 
You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. I don't know about you, but I've always wondered, what is it about eating fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that warrants this depiction in Scripture as the source of original sin? What is it about this act, described right here, as the foundational rebellion against God? That What happened here is what set the world off on a course of, of brokenness and pain in every direction. What is, what's going on here? I don't know if you've ever wondered about this. To put one more, one more way, how does living with the knowledge of good and evil separate us from God? So, the origin story here, Genesis 1. We've seen that we're created. Human beings are created out of love unbroken love God is a relationship God is trinity and humanity was created to live in and to receive this love to be in this relationship with God's God's goal for creation is to know and to have and to enjoy this perfect unbroken love and the world God made is for dwelling in God and for God dwelling in us where we're free to participate in this unbroken love and some theologians say that the, the whole point of humanity is to dance in the Trinity, to learn how to move, to learn how to give and receive love as God gives and receives love. But sin ruptures that dance. Sin ruptures the fellowship. How? That's what I'm trying to figure out here. How? What's the big deal? What? The fruit. Okay, I get it. What's the big deal? What's going on here? Now, remember... We just read it, but do you, do you remember where the tree was placed? Did that catch anyone's ear? At the center. The tree's at the middle. And so when Adam and Eve ate from the tree, what they're doing is they're imposing their will into the center of the garden. They've invaded the proper domain of God. Instead of recognizing that they were supposed to derive life from the center, from God... They placed themselves in the center. So the essence of sin then, according here to Genesis, the transgression is transgressing a proper boundary. We're not satisfied in being God-like in our capacity to love. We also want to be God-like in our capacity to judge, which is what the serpent tempts us to do. Is the, the essence of sin is the attempt to play God, to critically assess and evaluate everything and everyone from the center, from me at the center, from my limited, finite, biased perspective, living me-centered in the center of the world. Now hear this, our fundamental sin, Genesis says, is not our evil, it's about getting our life from what we believe is our knowledge of good and evil. See that a different way. Our fundamental sin is that we place ourselves in the position of God and divide the world based on what we see, based on categorizing and sorting and separating and naming and labeling. And this judgment is the primary thing that keeps us from doing the central thing that God created us to do, namely to love like he loves. Because unlike God, a human being cannot judge and love at the same time. Let me just pause and come up for air here. What are we even talking about? We're talking about judgment. Are we, are we talking about never making decisions, discernment? No. We looked at this last summer. I don't, remember, I don't assume any of you to remember this. I didn't, uh, even though I gave the sermon. on The Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, do not judge. So what are we talking about? Let's just do a quick review. 
It's, it's not. When Jesus says, do not judge, he's not saying don't think or don't have an opinion or don't discern. God isn't against discernment. All discernment involves the formation of judgments. This is the essence of wisdom, making good judgments in life. Let's, let's just see this diagram here. This judgment, there's some... Uh, next slide. So defini definition A is to discern, right? There's some separation there. Next slide. And to say, apples are not oranges. That's a, that's a fair judgment and a discernment. Next. Another type of judgment is to condemn. God hates apples, death to apples. And then to say, apples are less than oranges. Okay, next slide. So there's two different things when we use the one word judgment, and so it gets tricky. So call the column A, deciding, discerning, perceiving, distinguishing, noticing. I hope it's obvious. It's not what Jesus is saying, do not to. But it's, it's the second. It's condemning, criticizing, shaming, ignoring, and controlling. It's condemning. So this is about raising myself by lowering another. It's the act of setting myself above someone else. It's a means of control. It's a means of getting others to do what I want through things like criticizing and shaming and speaking against them. It's about assuming divine responsibility. It's about taking the center spot for evaluating the worth and value of another. It's about, it's about making pronouncements about another's worth, identity, and future. And these are pronouncements that no human has any business making. Why? Because they're human. <laughs> they're not God. We don't get to make final judgments on anyone or pretend to know God's verdict on other people's lives or write them off or assume I have the final word on the matter. Despite how social media comments work, and many offhand conversations and jokes and memes and even covert prayer requests talking about another person. I don't get to do God's job. This is what Jesus is saying no to. Elsewhere in scriptures, lots in the New Testament. Here's another place. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? I was reading the story that uh, someone was describing their experience of sitting in a mall. Are malls still a thing? Yeah. It just it occurred to me. Seven Oaks, yeah. <laughs> who here still goes to the mall? Anyone? Just curious. Some of us, yeah? Kingsgate. Oh, Kingsgate, yeah. Okay. You went to Claire's recently? Yeah, good. A little Orange Julius break. <laughs> it's nice. So it describes this experience of sitting in a mall and just doing some people watching. How, how many of you enjoy just engaging in a little bit of people watching? Stanley Park or somewhere else? Just enjoy enjoying, observing. And, and so he's doing this, and he said he noticed, um, he began noticing things. He said, I noticed that some are pretty and some are not. Some are slender and some are obese. And he said, then on the basis of what they were wearing and their facial expressions, the way they were relating to their partner or friends or kids, he says, I began making certain conclusions about their life. Ah, yeah, totally this type of person, seen this before. Oh, I bet they, ba, 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 ba. He said, some of them give me a warm feeling as I watch their tenderness towards their children, and others make me angry and even disgusted. He said, and then suddenly I noticed that I was noticing all this. He said, After moments of introspection, he realized that on some level what he was doing was making himself feel good. He said he's satisfying some need to stand in judgment over people. Deep down, he said, I really enjoyed, at least before the tribunal of my own mind, to pronounce the verdicts of pretty, ugly, good figure, fat, 
godly, probably ungodly, disgusting, cute, and so on. He said, and with this insight came another one, and he's sure that it was prompted by the Holy Spirit. He recalled that Jesus taught, wherever we go, our first responsibility is to bless and not curse, to not think or speak evil of anyone, anyone. He said, instantly I was convicted by how much non-blessing, in fact cursing, was going on in the middle of a mall while I was drinking a Coke. So you can do this in a mall. You can do this in a social media feed. You can do this in this room. You can do this, again, in prayer requests or consuming entertainment. Um, just to go back, uh, let's go back two slides. Uh, one more. One more. Yep, keep going. There we go. That one. You can do all of that on the right side just like without words. And it's easy to do this without even noticing it. The judgments are so instinctive that they can just float by. But every judgment that we think, speak, or act upon is related to what happened in that garden. It presupposes we're in a position of superiority over the, the idiot, that uneducated, backwards fundamentalist, or that progressive, you know, totally PC person that we're standing in judgment over. What's happening is it's presupposing that I'm God to the thing that I'm judging. And it's, it's an illegitimate judgment because I'm not God, I'm not at the center, I can't know what God knows. And ultimately, judgment cuts us off from the source of life. So receiving that kind of secret nourishment of like feeling superior gives a momentary feeling of superiority, fullness of deity. This is feasting on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead of getting fullness from the life of God, I get it fullness. Try and get fullness from the attempt of being wise, knowing good and evil, living in judgment rather than love. So please stay with me. Please, please stay with me. Here's why all of this matters, particularly for those interested in religion and who are part of the church, which I include myself. I wonder if the reason why it's really hard to know what Paul is even talking about in 1 Corinthians 4 is that because to a large extent, the church has continued, hear me, continued to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil without realizing it. We've often defined ourselves as the practitioners and defenders of the good, the judges and the conquerors of evil and the saviors of people and societies. Churchgoers often, myself included, not only eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but do it better than anyone else and assume that judging is part of the game. Judging is godliness. It proves that I'm not like them. And to some extent, I use a sense of being right with God to root a delusion that I'm standing up for holiness, truth, and God by mentally and verbally passing judgment on people. So it reinforces, and it's invisible, and it's really hard to see. We're eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in so dealing, we're forsaking our most fundamental calling to love others as God has loved us. Now, as I said, this judgment goes in every direction. It can go to others. It can go to me. It can go to God. Judgment, this is how the world works. Just a feasting off of that tree. I was thinking this week, I'm sure I've told some of you this story, but I just started this sermon last night, so give me a break if I, I'm, I'm using old material, okay? Um, I, was, I was thinking again about when you have a kid, um, you receive the gift of a little body, one that comes with coos and translucent fingernails and really soft tufts of ear hair. And you learn to serve this little body, feeding it, washing it, snuggling it, protecting it, putting on 23 different outfits a day because of the emissions that come out of this little body. 
And best of all, you get to watch a little being come into their own body to find their voice, their hands, and their legs, and to begin to occupy space in the world. It's an amazing thing. And you know this if you've had a niece or a nephew. And in all of this, you're learning to attend to a little body, but something else is happening. At least it has for me. You remember that you, too, have a body. And I remember holding my son in those first moments. Middle of the night, it's just him and me. Uh, and I was, I was looking in his face. And for the very first time, just the two of us in the middle of the night, I remember thinking, he looks a lot like me. And that was followed by, oh, no, he looks a lot like me. His face, my oldest son, his face is really my face. And I was looking at this little guy's face, and it was so alive with goodness. And this little infant was quietly beaming back to me revelation by contrast. Because my face is not often alive with goodness, but often covered with shame. This shameless, beautiful, alive and goodness little boy looking at me with my own face. So now, like my grandfather Conrad, and then my father after him, in the line of Odegaard men, I've been gifted with big ears. And it would seem that God creates Odegaards with, uh, you can use these now and grow them into them later kind of principle with ears. And this may seem really trite to you. And it's, it's embarrassing to say. But growing up, I was embarrassed. I had shame around my body, around how jowly I was, jowls and ears. And I remember girls at Hastings Lake Lutheran Bible Camp calling me blowfish. And that stung. And then I remember growing up and people called me ape boy because I had these really big ears. Now, I look back and I go, why did that? This is, this is ridiculous. Um, why did that lodge so deeply? What I was most embarrassed about was very plump earlobes, like thick. Put that here. <laughs> plump earlobes. Now, again, you may think this is shallow, and you're like, what are you even talking about? But I bet you've got your thing. I'm guessing you have your thing about your body. A small thing that somehow seems like that, that the presence of that is a disqualifier. Presence of that creates shame. So one night when Elijah was about two and a half years old, we heard him yell from his, his bedroom, I have these! <laughs> and we thought, what? Is he yelled it again, I have these! And so I ran into the room, and because it was dark, I couldn't see what he was talking about, so I knelt beside the bed and was just trying to, just trying to find him. And I eventually found his hands, and his hands were up. And for the first time, he had discovered earlobes and his own earlobes. And he said one more time, I have these. <laughs> and as I was feeling by his face, I could feel that he was smiling. The boy felt and felt that it was good. <laughs> Sometimes you need a second opinion. Sometimes you need someone who looks like you to sneak into your world and to announce the original creation intent, it is good. Been living under judgment and condemnation, your own. So my, my boy, looking into his face, which is my face, saying back to me, I have these, helped me in a small way to say, yeah, me too. I have these too. Now Jesus does exactly this. He sneaks in looks like us, comes as a human and shows us what life looks like when it's not feasting off of that tree, a life that's not rooted in judgment but in love. And Jesus arrives on the scene and says, let me set you free. If you get your life from me, you no longer have to get your life from your own rightness. You can get it from mine. If you get from your life from me, you will be empowered to live with an indiscriminate love. If you get your life from me, you can die from the me first, the center at the world view. You can die from that and you can be free. 
All of this is possible because there's a new tree that's at the center of the world, a different tree to draw life from. Rather than feasting on the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you get to feast on the tree of good absorbing evil, the cross of Christ. And now, by looking and feasting off of this tree, it changes everything. It changes how you see people. Because in, instead of looking out from here at the center, I'm looking to Christ who's at the center, and I'm watching how he looks at people. I'm starting to take on his perspective and his gaze at people. I begin to see the unsurpassable worth because Jesus paid an unsurpassable price in dying for them. So this guy in the mall shares the, the, a shift in the story where he decided to do a little thought experiment in the mall and decided that every person he saw in the mall in that afternoon, he was going to love and bless them as people uniquely created by God. He was just going to shift how he saw them. And whatever they looked like, however they were behaving, whatever their demeanor, he simply agreed with God that each of them has infinite worth and he just loved them began randomly selecting people in the crowd to love and to bless. And he said, as I replaced my judgmental thoughts with prayers of blessing, with prayers rooted in love, he said, something actually began to happen. I began to see that the worth I was ascribing to in people, I began to feel love. I began to feel, he said, it felt like an expansion happening in me. I wasn't allowing any other thought or opinion or sorting or judgment to enter my mind. He said, at one point I thought I might explode with love. He said, I was waking up in that moment to the immeasurable value and beauty of each person. He said, sitting in the mall sipping a Coke, I was enjoying God's creations. I was experiencing the heart of God. And it was like waking up from a coma. I felt as though I was remembering something I'd long since forgotten. And he goes on to experience that. What he feels he was experiencing in that moment was he was getting drawn in to the love and the joy and the delight, the triune God holds for all of creation. He said as he was doing that, he started to experience something else. He said it was compassion. Started seeing people with compassion. He was seeing how many of the ways this worth is suppressed in others' lives. Suppressed. There's loneliness, fear, and pain. He started to experience what Jesus saw when he saw crowds of people. Now, this movement of, that he's described of being rooted in judgment and moving to be rooted in love isn't just one that happens, I think, uniquely to him and them all, I think this is the movement that the gospel moves us in. This is the movement. How do we know that? The book of Romans, which we're going to go through in its entirety right now. No. But the, the book of Romans is a great look at this, mo this movement. Okay, Romans 1 to 11. This absolutely massive like treasure-filled description of the beauty of the glorious gospel of Jesus. And in Romans 8, Paul is taking so much time excavating this gospel. In Romans 8, he says, There is that now, therefore, no more judgment, no more condemnation in Christ. He's like, that game is done. And the rest of that chapter, he's talking about how there's two ways to live. According to the flesh, if you want to stay in the old game, or according to the spirit. Keeps going. And then in, there's another pivot in, in Romans 12. He says, therefore, in view of God's mercy. He's taken 11 chapters up to this point to describe God's mercy. Therefore, in view, as you're seeing that kind of mercy, now. Let's start working it out. And the rest of chapter 12 is what mercy and love look like in action. If, if you go to Romans 12, let's, well, let's just do it. We can. We're partly making this up as we go anyway. So uh, Romans 12, look at it, love, like verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted in one another to one another. Joyful in hope, on and on it goes. And then Romans 13. Look at Romans 13, verse 8. 
says, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. When you love other people, you have fulfilled the law. We, we could just, it would be an interesting sermon just for that line to be repeated for 45 minutes and just see if that could sift a little lower. When you love others, you fulfilled the law. And now Paul makes a pivot in Romans 14. Because up to this point, it's like, yes, awesome. God's mercy. Love it until I have to do it. Love it. Love expositional sermons on Romans. Mm. Love it until I have to love. And that's Romans 14 gets messy because here's a case study of what love looks like, not in abstract, but in community. And this is all about how to hold tension in the midst of difference, how to have unity in the midst of disagreement. And in Romans 14, Paul's going to outline all kinds of disputable matters, all kinds of disagreements these particular people were having. Disagreements over can you drink or should you drink freely? Disagreements between some who are vegetarians and some who ate meat. Some who thought you can't meet, eat meat uh, sacrifice to idols. That's the absolute worst thing. And some who are saying, no, it's okay. Some who are saying, no, there's really special days you all have to observe. And some saying, no, I'm not observing those. This is about how believers live in peace when they hold differing convictions in the midst of disagreement. I wonder what kinds of things Christians dispute over these days. I wonder, what, what kind of, let's just, let's throw it open. What kinds of things do Christians disagree about these days? Be bold. What's that? Gay marriage. Politics. Television and news. Yeah, harm reduction. Coffee. Boy, we've seen that in the life of this church, haven't we? Whew. Yep. What else? Climate change. Women in leadership. How to be a Christian. Israel. Consumerism. A few things. Would you go with me in Romans 14? I'm going to try and land this plane here very shortly. But will you come with me to Romans 14? This is my favorite part of the sermon coming up here. So if that, this is, I just, I've been in Romans 14 a lot lately and I think there's a lot here. So what Paul is doing now is saying love in community in the midst of disagreement and disputes begins here. Verse 1, accept Accept. The verb here means to receive, to welcome in. There's a, there's a, to draw to oneself. So if the movement of judgment is to separate, the movement of acceptance is to bring close. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. And now Paul from verse 2 on starts outlining what some of those disputable matters are. Verse 4, jumping there, he says, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall. Paul's appealing to something they would know about servants and masters and, and saying, You already know that that servant answers not to that master, but to their master. And servants don't answer to one another. So he's taking this saying, You don't answer to another Christian, you answer to God. That's who you don't stand under judgment someone else and he continues on into verse 8 all the way down he uh, let's just pick up it's in the middle of a sentence but that's okay if if we live we live for the Lord and if we die we die for the Lord so whether we live or die we belong to the Lord for this very reason Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead you see what Paul's doing there oh he's insisting for 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 the Lord the person at the center 
is Christ. The person at the center, it's Christ's lordship. It's for the Lord. When you're in the midst of deep disagreement and difference, the lordship of Jesus is so crucial. Make this the reference point. Jesus is leader. Jesus is capable. Jesus is Lord. I'm not, you aren't. Jesus is. And then verse 10, he puts it even a sharper point on it. He says this, you so he does, it's a pretty brilliant rhetorical move. He just kind of tightens the screws a little bit. You, then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Why are you playing judge? In, in view of God's mercy, what are you doing holding contempt how is this being allowed? You're answerable, you're answerable to God in judging and despising others. You're trying to play the role of God. And verse 12, he keeps going. And this is essentially our part of the creed. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Verse 13, therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. You go, well, what are the stumbling blocks? Paul doesn't, he doesn't say what they are. He doesn't, define, he doesn't define them. But here, a stumbling block, the idea is of tripping someone, putting up barricades, causing spiritual downfall to another. He says, don't do that. In verse 15, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer acting in love. Do not, by your eating, destroy someone for whom Christ died. Do not destroy someone for your pet theological position. Do not destroy someone because of your favorite brand of politics. Do not destroy someone. Verse 15 no, we did that. <laughs> the goal is love. Verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Make every effort. This ain't going to be easy. This is going to cost. This is going to be inconvenient. This is at times going to involve pain. Whatever you think is reasonable amounts of effort, do that and more. Lean in because the goal is making peace where there's been division and the goal is mutual edification. Mutual. Mutual edification. Peace, mutual edification. And then he makes another point again. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, for the sake of you fill in the blank, your disputable matter. Don't do it. Carrying on, stay with me. We're almost, we're landing this thing. Verse five. No, let's go verse one. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scripture and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. Now verse 5, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus has had. That's the reference point. That's the, defini that's the dictionary definition of how to treat one another in the midst of conflict and dispute and disagreement. How Jesus treats people. In verse 7, accept one another then just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. I'm not sure what you're hearing when we go through that. There's a lot there. I'm not sure what resonances are going off. I wonder if some of you are thinking about our upcoming conversation night on May 27th. As we get ready to begin a process of discernment as a congregation, to deeply listen to the Spirit and to Scripture and to one another regarding LGBTQ inclusion. 
might there be something here for our journey ahead? Maybe there's other resonance, other situations you have in your life, deep conflict, other places and, and people in this, in this congregation that may be kind of pinging off or there's much difference and disagreement. All kinds of divides, progressive, traditionalist, men and women and left and right and all, all endless divides. Artisan church, we're not working the way of Jesus out in theory. This is in real time with real people, with these people. So whether you're a partner, whether you're considering partnership, whether you're, you feel like you're on the edge of this community, wherever you're at, can I say this to us this morning? It's our turn. It's our turn. It's our turn to practice the way of Jesus in real time with one another. And there's so much possibility in this moment. There's lots of risk. There's lots of possibility. There's the possibility of looking in the face of another person who I thought was the other and seeing my own face and therefore being converted. There's, I think, the genuine possibility for revival. That's what I'm praying for. Uh, there, there's the possibility of discovering someone who I have othered and now is a friend. There's the, there's the possibility of making peace where it did not exist before. It's our turn. And when, when, when the Apostle Paul says, accept one another in order to bring praise to God. Let your, your relationships be energized by love rather than judgment so that God is glorified. So that God's triune love starts showing up. People like, I don't know about the church, but I do know they accept people who are different than them. And there's no reason they should be together except for who's standing at the center of that community, and that's Jesus Christ. It's our turn. So just to recap, here's the commands. To accept, to stop passing judgment on one another instead of, no, instead, no stumbling blocks. Do not destroy someone for whom Christ died. Make every effort for peace and mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God. Bear with the failings of the weak, knowing that others are bearing with the failings of your weakness. Seek to please your neighbors for their good. Accept one another just as Christ has accepted you. Just as. Just as. Where do I most clearly see the just as? I see it in that second tree. I see it in the cross. While we were yet sinners, Christ died. Looking at the cross, I learned to see as Christ sees. So here's the thing. Right now, in each of our lives, there are attitudes and habits and mindsets and types of privilege and practices that we are not yet aware of and that I don't yet see as sin. And I may even argue with God about but has Jesus ever waited for me to be sinless before offering me acceptance? No. Does Jesus wait for me to agree with him about my sin before offering acceptance? No. Does Jesus love me into change? Yes. Does Jesus exhibit patience and long-suffering and endurance and bearing with me as I struggle? Yes. So, when we confess this creed, there is a judge, and you ain't it. And I'm not it, and the pastors aren't it, and the church isn't it. There is a judge, there's one who holds truth and love perfectly in tension, who knows how to correct without condemn, who knows how to confront you without shaming you, who utterly and ruthlessly and truthfully calls you out, and yet when he does, it feels like he's calling you in and calling you up because his burden is light. Because his mercy triumphs over judgment. There is one who will come to judge the living and the dead. There's one judge. And that judge is looking to make a community here. A new society of relationships that exist as just as relationships. So, ours in church. Just as you have forgiven, forgive. And just as you have been welcomed, welcome. And just as your gifts have been named and celebrate, name 
and celebrate the gifts of others. And just as Jesus has never once treated you as your sins deserve, don't ever treat someone else as theirs. And just as mercy has triumphed over judgment for you, let mercy triumph over judgment for others. Amen. Living God, we, we stand in this moment just first of all expressing gratitude and praise that your love endures forever. Thank you that each person in this room was created out of love and for love. Living God has come also as people who have eaten deeply of that first tree. The world works by judgments. We ask for the grace to enter a time of repentance, of self-emptying, of coming into agreement with you about our, our tendency to judgments. We invite you, Spirit of God, to search us and to know us as a congregation, to surprise us. We invite your Spirit's activity in our midst to show us where we have been full of judgment. We thank you for the announcement that there is therefore now no condemnation. There's no more judgment. Would you show us how to live in this new space, in this new covenant with Christ at the center? And we, we say with our words and we make it our confession, we want you, Jesus, at the center. No other person, you at the center. You are Lord, you're leader, and we trust you. And may the way you see people soften how we see ourselves and see others, especially those we disagree with deeply. And we pray boldly for your spirit to do a new work here. We would like to sign up for whatever reviving work you want to do in our midst. Just say yes to that. As we've received your mercy, which has triumphed over judgment, may we be a community, therefore, in view of God's mercy, who just is endlessly creative to embody mercy in Vancouver. Would you give us grace? Would you teach us from those who have been recipients of a lot of mercy to, to be our leaders?